This morning, I want to talk about the nightmare before New Year's. We've all heard this, the, the poem, The Night Before Christmas. There was a movie called The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I want to talk today about the nightmare before New Year's and about what Christmas has become and what we can do about it. I'd like to start out with a poem called The Nightmare Before New Year's by Jordan Rimmer. "'Twas the nightmare before New Year's, and all through the land, everyone was stirring as fast as they can. The decorations were hung, but were they enough? Paying off all this credit card debt will be tough. The children were tucked in and dreaming upstairs of expensive toys that they'll break and they'll lose and won't share. Mom and I were exhausted and fell fast asleep, for this was a pace that we just couldn't keep. It was snowing outside and starting to pile. In the morning, I would have to shovel a while. Man, was the winter always rough on my back. And we're traveling this week and didn't yet pack. The kids would wake up before the crack of dawn to open their toys and all day they'd yawn. Then we dash to see family throughout the day and we'll eat and we'll talk while all the kids play. As the day moves along, a smile turns to a frown. Someone is bound to have a meltdown. It might be a kid who didn't get enough sleep or an adult with too many secrets to keep. Is this really what Christmas is all about? That we run and we spend and we stress and we shout? We hustle and bustle and wear ourselves thin. Is there something more happening that we just won't let in? Then we realize with a great amount of fear, we're going to have to do this all again next year. But bigger and better and nicer and more. More shopping, more cookies of everything more. Or we could choose differently here, you and I. We could hold on to love and give up the lie that Christmas is all about presents and stuff. We could look at it differently, but it will be tough. Maybe it's not about presents at all, or decorations, or cookies, or sales at the mall. Maybe the holiday is all about love that started with Christ who came from above. The love that was laid in the manger of hay changes the way we love others today. Maybe this Christmas we can more than get through. Merry Christmas, I say, and God's blessings to you. There you go, my first poem. Thank you. Does anybody else feel the pressure of the holiday? The shopping, the travel? Things are, things are wrapping up at work for the year, and a lot of us want to take some time off at the holiday. So, of course, you're more busy at work. You're more busy at home trying to get everything done that you need to get done. All the religious expectations, this is the time of year you're supposed to go to church, and you're supposed to think holy things, supposed to have Christmas Eve with family and pray a little bit more. I know for me as a pastor, the first couple Christmases I had... Um, I basically missed as a pastor um, because the whole work thing and the whole religion thing were all sort of wrapped up for me. And it got very easy to do Christmas without experiencing Christmas. 
It got easy to live as a human doing instead of a human being. We all have this sense that there's something bigger, something more important going on, but it's hard to find it in the hamster wheel that seems to be Christmas. As we just sort of chug as fast as our little legs can take us as Christmas approaches. And so today I want to take a look at what Christmas is all about and try to speak as plainly about what's really going on at Christmas as I possibly can. To do that, we're going to go to a strange place. We're going to go to the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible, the Bible in the pew, go to the little book of Galatians. You might have to use the index at the front to find it. It's just a little book. We're going to Galatians chapter 4. Now, as you're finding it, let me give you a little background on Galatia. Galatia was an area in what is now present-day Turkey. Okay? Uh, and uh, it was a place that Paul traveled to, and when he was there, he planted a church. He, he spoke among Christ to this, church, to this place. There were not a lot of Jews there. They were mainly Gentiles, maybe mainly from the Roman Empire. And Galatia was a pretty wild place. It's sort of the New Orleans of its day. I mean, it's just a lot of stuff going on, a lot of craziness. And so for Paul to plant a church there is pretty interesting. Uh, the, the mode of the day in Galatia was everything for yourself. Buy what you want, spend what you want, make yourself happy. And uh, Paul comes in and says, no, there's some different way to live. But apparently after Paul comes there, there are these others that come along behind him. We call them the Judaizers. They're the ones that want to make the Gentile church become Jews. Want to put in a bunch of laws that the, the Gentiles have to follow. And so the Galatian church is in crisis. They're falling away from what Paul has taught them. And some of them are going back and just living chaotic, selfish lives. Others of them are moving into this extreme legalism. All these rules. And Paul writes them in, in probably his most criticizing letter. To say, no, 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 no. You, you're missing it. And you better get it back. You're managing your own happiness. Or you're managing all these rules. But the gospel is something else. He uses such strong language. He talks about slavery. That they're slaves to the law. And he, he clarifies what he's saying in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here ends the reading of God's word. For Paul, there are two ways to be enslaved to the law. One is to be totally irreligious. If you just do whatever you want in your life, whatever makes you happy, then you are a slave to the law. 
Why? Because you stand condemned by the law. You stand condemned that what your life is is not what it should be. The other way to be enslaved by the law is to make that is to go back to the law. In other words, Paul is concerned that these Christians at Galatia, who are free from the law, not condemned by the law anymore because of Jesus Christ, are going back under it and trying to live their lives by the law. If you go back and live your lives by the law, then the law identifies you. Then you have to follow all the rules to be saved. And once again, you're a slave. Paul, in this verse, in this section, uses the metaphor of an heir. Okay, That's a firstborn son. Somebody who should receive the, the blessings of, of the house and of the name and of the lineage uh, of the land, of everything about who the family is, goes to the heir. But his metaphor is that when an heir is a child, they're, they're too young. They don't get to inherit anything. They basically have to follow the rules just like everybody else. They, they're heirs, but they're still sort of slaves in the house. They're still servants. The inheritance that Paul is talking about is used in the Bible a number of times, this idea of inheritance. The idea of the kingdom of God or salvation. The idea that God made you and I to help in the work of ruling this world. The Jews were given this right in the Old Testament. They were heirs, but, but Paul's metaphor here is that they were still young. They still hadn't seen everything they needed to see to, to accomplish what God had put them through. And so they were still kind of under the law. Law showed the need for Jesus. It gave people a way to look forward in their faith. But Jesus comes. And the law is changed. Paul's, Paul talks about the fullness of time. When the time is right, when that season of the world is over... God sends Christ. Christ comes. This is amazing for Paul. Paul is a guy who's really big on the cross. He talks about the cross all the time. Goes back to the cross. Goes back to Easter constantly. But when he wants to give the Galatians hope, when he wants to get them back on track as to where their faith should be, he doesn't go to Easter. Where does he go? To Christmas. That in the fullness of time, Christ comes. Why? Because Christ coming is a relational act. Jesus coming, being fully God and fully human, is relational. Yes, he has to go to the cross. Sin has to be paid for. But even as that child is born and laid in a manger, God is already healing the mend between God and human beings. Why? Because Jesus is both. Jesus is in his person, both man and human, and therefore he is already, as a baby, beginning this healing and mediating process. Why does Christ do this? Why does Christ come? Paul uses the metaphor of adoption. Adoption as sons. Now, understand that the Bible wasn't written with the same kind of modern gender equality sensitivities that we have. And so in, in one sense, this means definitely sons and daughters. But I think it also says sons for a reason. Because sons were the only ones who could actually inherit. 
And so for us to be invited into sonship means we are invited into the family. We are adopted. I love that metaphor of adoption. I think a lot of you probably know I have a brother who is adopted. And uh, I've always found that metaphor powerful of somebody who is unwanted to be received into somebody else's family as wanted. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, but it takes a lot of legal structure to do that. For a family to give up a child, for a family to find that child, and then to legally adopt them. Do you know that Jewish law provides none of that legal structure? In the ancient world, adoption almost never happened. It's very, very rare. There's not the kind of legal structure required to do that. Besides the fact that to adopt someone, particularly a son, would be to mess with the inheritance of your own children. Adoption was not done regularly. It would be too damaging. Because family in those days were your identity. The family you were in, they, that defined your religion. That defined your status in society. That defines your economic and political security. So to be adopted just didn't happen very much. For Paul to use this language is saying something strong. Something about us. That we were not wanted. That we were not worthy. And yet Christ wants us. And yet God goes and gets us. So that we will be inheritors. So that we will be part of God's plan. Why does Christ come? Because it's a positional change for us. A change in status that we can now be part of God's family. But, but Paul goes even a step further. When he says that God also sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts. That we might cry, Abba, Father. Not only are we no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters. But, but God is with us in a new and special way. Deeper than even the Garden of Eden. That God is with us in us. That we would cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a word, it's daddy. It's dada. It's a very familiar term. That we would be like children before God, running and giving a great big hug. That's the image. And so we don't just get a change in status, a change in position. We get a change in closeness, a relational change. We relate to God the Father as daddy, and suddenly God is at work in our lives. In Galatians, Paul is, is, is worried about them because he sees the problem. He sees the problem with total, being totally irreligious. And being slaves to the law. And he sees the problem of being super religious. That if we add a bunch of rules, we're in the same sort of slavery to the law. And that Christ doesn't fit in either of those categories. It's not just that Jesus is in the middle of those. It's not just that the gospel is sort of part of both of those things. No, the gospel is something altogether. That you didn't deserve it. That you can't earn it. You're just adopted. Taken in. Now, for Paul, that does mean that you have to live differently. And that does mean that we need religious structures to help us live differently. But the center is never finding your own happiness. And the center is never following all the rules and getting all the external stuff right. The center is always a relationship. 
There's these two ways to be slaves to the law. Two narratives that we can get caught up in. The world wants us to find happiness, to work up, worry about economics, to get more stuff. The religious system wants us to follow rules and get more disciplined. But both of those things end up being contrary to the gospel. And this is so important for us at Christmas. Because I think those two extremes are exactly what we feel as the holidays approach. We feel the need to make ourselves happy or to make other people happy so that we feel happy about ourselves. To buy and to give gifts and to keep people happy. And and then we feel this tension, right? Because then we also know we should be more spiritual about this holiday. We should go to church or we should be doing some devotionals or we should be finding something else. Make sure that we're here on Christmas Eve. But something else entirely is going on, and that something is a relationship. We can't manage the checklist of Christmas and manage the checklist of religion. We have to turn from managers into mangers. We can't be managers of the stuff, managers of the list. We must be mangers where Christ is born and at work in our lives. That is deeply personal. It is really hard to do. And it's really easy to let those other things distract us. But the beauty is, the beauty is that if we get this center right, that those other things can be helpful for us. It can be a real special blessing to give gifts at Christmas, to spend time with family, to spoil your grandkids a little bit. It can be a special blessing to to participate in the church at this time to sing the carols, to come sing Silent Night on that special Christmas Eve. It's important and it's valuable because those things mark the adoption that we have found in Christ. When we get the center right, the rest of it becomes all the more beautiful. My challenge for you, my hope for you, and my prayer for you is that this holiday would be all the sweeter for you. Not because... You do all the gifts right. And not because you get all the church stuff right. But because those things help support what's really going on. Which is Christ drawing close to you and being at work in your life in this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, it is easy for us to get caught up in the hustle and bustle of Christmas. It's easy for it to turn into a nightmare. For us to just get through. Lord, we don't want to just get through. We want to meet you in this time. We want to know you better because we've journeyed to Christmas. We want to hold our family tighter because we know we are part of your family. And so help us to get past the craziness and to really meet you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.